Freddie may come back if Freddie comes back. You're going to have to catch him. Welcome to Hill Law Firm Cases, a podcast discussing real-world cases handled by Justin Hill and the Hill Law Firm. For confidentiality reasons, names and amounts of any settlements have been removed. However, the facts are real, and these are the cases we handle on a day-to-day basis. All right, welcome to this episode of Hill Law Firm Cases Podcast. I just made Hunter Kraft listen to our ominous intro music, which the podcast that that I started for the law firm has really kind of changed since I've started it, and it's become more of just kind of a, I mean, I really think if you just listen to the podcast, you would learn everything you need to know about my law firm, who's here, who we work with, and the types of cases we handle. And honestly, I think that's been a pretty big success. So Hunter, thank you for being here. Justin, thanks for having me, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to visiting with you. Yeah, a little color commentary. Hunter is who I tell people has been the closest thing I've had to having a mentor. Uh, as a lawyer, he was um, a attorney at Watts when I started. He then became a capital partner with his name on the wall at some point, which was well-deserved. Uh, I worked in his office. I worked on cases with him. And then over time, we've started our own law firms and still occasionally we work together. Uh, and I rely upon Hunter heavily to provide me guidance, um, sometimes tell me when I'm being an idiot, and really just be a great friend. So I'm glad you're here, and I want to talk to you about the things that I think are interesting about you. And like I told you before the show, the kind of context is a lot of people nerd out about being lawyers. I tell people you're the best lawyer they've never heard of because you're not into the pomp and the, you know, the, the stuff on Facebook and all that, you do it quietly and you do a great job. So I'm getting the opportunity to ask you questions that I'm sure a bunch of lawyers wish they could. Well, I appreciate it. I tell you, I've, t- I've told a million people that the greatest compliment I've ever gotten is the one you gave me. And that is that, that, that you refer to me as the greatest lawyer that, that people have never heard of. And that, that there's a, it's a source of pride with me. Uh, I, you know, I've always been taught and, and since growing up under my father that, that you know, it doesn't take pomp and circumstance. You don't, you don't need billboards. You don't need TV ads. You don't need to brag about everything that happens good. Uh, if you do a good job for your clients and you're fighting every lawyer out there uh, to whom that will eventually be relevant, will know about it. And I think to everyone that comes across your path, they know who you are. And, and it's funny in my world, there's so many lawyers I run across and talk to, and there's some that have never heard of you. And then they're the ones that have worked with you or against you have nothing but great things to say. So let's just sort of get started. You and I are both Baylor Law graduates. You were there a little bit before me. Um, You left Baylor and got the job at one of the firms that everybody leaving Baylor wishes they could get, Fulbright and Jaworski. That was one of, man, that was one of the top echelon firms. Uh, What drew you to to Fulbright? And then honestly, you weren't there that long, so what drew you to leave? You know, the obvious answers on Fulbright, right? It was one of the jobs that everybody really wanted. It was, you know, you got to crawl into an elevator and go up 41 flights and get out and hear the ding and look around and see some of the greatest talent in the country uh, walking the halls. Uh, you walked down the hall and, and, and you were picking the brains of people like Steve Dillard and Otway Denny and, and, and some of these names that, that a lot of your listeners will know too. And I don't know how you turned down that opportunity. Every case that you were working on was important. Uh, the guidance, the leadership, um, the brain power, the resources that you had uh, was, I can't think of a better way that I could have started my career. Um, but ultimately, I wasn't drawn to defending corporate America. Uh, and in fact, my heartstrings kind of pull me in the opposite direction. I know that 
they deserve a defense and they deserve a good defense, but that, that was not my cup of tea. And also kind of a different thing about the era when you came out were the big building silk stocking firms, most of them still had some amount of litigation power in them. They've all moved away from that, it seems like, but you were kind of on the back end of the big firms having stud litigators. I mean, kind of fair to say that a lot of those have moved away from that, right? There's no question. And, you know, I'm not necessarily proud of it because I would I would scold the young lawyer for approaching it the way I did. But honestly, when, when the offers went out after clerkship, uh, I made it a very clear point to Fulbright. And I had another neat opportunity, and we can talk about that later of some other people I clerked under. But ultimately, one of the conditions uh, to go into Fulbright was, as I said, you, you've got to put me on one of these two last tort teams. Huh. There was two teams, and it's divided into teams. And those were the only people doing real-world litigation uh, anymore. You know, all the rest of it was paper pushing and these giant commercial lawsuits and that sort of thing. But in terms of actually having an opportunity to get there and fight it out a little bit, there were really only two teams left, and, and I insisted upon it. And frankly, instead of instead of kicking me in the rear end and sending me on down the road, uh, they were receptive to the idea, and, and I did. I got a lot of great experience in sort of the last waning years of that opportunity in big firm law. And, uh, and what were your other job offers? You mentioned it, so what were they? You know, I was really torn between, you know, you have the usual slew of, of some big firms that I had interviewed with, but but the other clerkship I took was really interesting. And, and someday when we have another 15 minutes, I'll tell you how I ended up in Fulbright of Houston. But, you know, I grew up in Dallas yeah. and I had a really unique opportunity to work under somebody that was a defense lawyer then who is now one of the preeminent plaintiff's lawyers in the country, Charla Aldous. Oh, I and didn't know that. So I, I did. I clerked uh, with her back when it was Cooper, Aldous and Scully. And I walked in day one, and for whatever reason, she happened to be in the office because she was always out of the office trying cases and, and walked by and said, let's go grab lunch. I want to meet the new kid. And we hit it off. And, and I did, you know, the predominance of my work uh, for her and through her. And she was real honest with me that she wasn't probably long for that insurance billable defense work, huh. uh, that, that that portion of her career was winding down. Yeah. Uh, at the time. And so it, it made it a little easier to end up at Fulbright, but, but that was certainly a unique opportunity. And she's gone on to have an incredibly successful career. She's amazing. Yeah. As a plaintiff's lawyer now. So you were at Fulbright. Um, you stayed what, nine months ish? No, I was there 18. I, I was there oh, twice. Okay. Justin. Okay. All right. So two, <laughs> for whatever reason, it was in gestation periods to me. So two, two children worth, um, <laughs> you know, there's reasons I think in those terms at this point in my life, but you went from there, you went straight into what would have been Watson Heard at the time. I mean, that's about the time, what year would that have been? It was April of 2001. Okay, that's probably about the time I started like looking in Texas Lawyer and stuff like that. And they were on the, you know, full page ads about these monster verdicts and monster settlements. I mean, those guys were kind of, they were the new kid on the block and they were, you know, hot as hot as fire could be. All I can remember is, you know, back when people used to get Texas Lawyer in print format, yeah. you would see these full page of Denman and Michael walking up to the courthouse and, you know, it would say Watson Heard coming soon to a courthouse near you or, <laughs> you know, $35 million in verdicts and 35, you know, whatever, all before the age of 35. And, you know, there was, it was, a, pretty it was a flash and I got to hand it to those guys. They, uh, not only did they market it well, but frankly, they backed it up. Yeah. I mean, two, two of the 
better trial lawyers I think I've ever had the privilege of watching work. Yeah. And Watts, Watts came on here and, you know, I had a lot of young lawyers reach out and said, how did you get him to come on your show? You know I mean? There still <laughs> is that mentality of like, there, there are people that are kind of untouchable. You know, if you're a, if you're a guy doing TV commercials, you could never meet George Clooney. And I think a lot of young plaintiff's lawyers trying to make it, man, that's the top of the top of the heap. And you know, he's earned it. And in fairness, that's something that I was drawn to always yeah. about Watley is, you know, um, tremendously successful lawyer, well earned. Um, he has had a lot of notoriety, um, all of it based upon hard work and success. But uh, really, if there's ever a guy you could sit down and drink a Miller Lite with, as you know, um, that would be happy to pull up a chair right next to him wherever he's sitting uh, and visit with somebody, pick their brain, let you pick his brain. Uh, communicate with you. He was he was definitely influential in my career in, in in terms of that. So how did you get how'd you get over to Watts? I mean, leaving Fulbright, I'm sure there were lots of options for someone like you. You'd already had a good uh, academic career. You've got the pedigree of Fulbright and Jaworski. You worked on a tort team there. Otway Denny, I know, was one of the guys that sort of you said has kind of mentored you at that point in your career. Who still is a legend? How did you choose and end up at Watts? It's really funny. I, I, it was all through Denman Hurt. I'd never met Michael. Uh, there was a lawyer uh, who I just hold in great regard that was a little ahead of me at um, Baylor and then at Fulbright. And then he jumped to Michael, a guy named Roger Bra. And Roger had already left. His family was from the Kingsville area. So he had already left to go work for Michael when Michael was just in Corpus. And word had leaked that Denman was joining Michael and that they might need an associate. And it leaked through one of Denman's old law partners when he was at Williams Bailey or whatever the iteration sure. was when Denman was there. And uh, and uh, just by word of mouth, I ended up meeting Denman uh, for a bucket of beers at a place that's no longer there in downtown Houston. And after about two hours, I, I was sold. Uh, I walked in the next morning and, and, and made the, had a painful conversation with the guys at Fulbright that I'd, I'd made a decision to do something different. And you went through this in a way I did not, but without getting into details, you left a real salary to go work for Michael, which was a basically eat what you kill type of environment. Did you, I mean, what was sort of your process in doing that? Sit down with, you know, your wife at the time and say, look, we're going to have some lean years or, or did you just expect it was going to be super easy? Uh, I didn't. Uh, well, I, I thought it was going to be easier than what it ended up being. And it certainly wasn't easy. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Uh, and to this day, it was a situation where we were pregnant. Uh, we had just bought a house and I didn't have a salary. Um, it was a, it was a draw. I didn't even know what a draw was. I remember the first question <laughs> that I asked when we got into a firm meeting is somebody kept using the term referral lawyer. And I raised my hand, just like I was in law school and asked what a referral lawyer was. So I was green. Um, it was a hard, steep learning curve. Uh, I, I tell the story. It's, it's really funny. I got into a fist fight in my front yard with a Ford Motor Credit guy that came to repossess my expedition that I'd bought when I had a Fulbright salary. And I physically could not make the payments on it anymore. Uh, I had bill collectors calling me. I had everybody calling me. And, and that's when, you know, my wife had a job and a salary and she was doing the best she could, but ultimately her goal and our goal for her was to be a stay at home mom. And so you can imagine the compounding problems that I had created by taking sure. a steady certain job when she's pregnant and ended yeah. up to a place where we're physically fighting off bill collectors. But, you know, looking back on it, I can say it with a smile. It wasn't funny then explaining to the Westview police why I had just taken a swing at the Ford <laughs> Motor I mean, uh, tow truck driver. Uh, but looking back on it now, I'm, 
so grateful for those years because it's made me hungry. It's made me smart when we've had the opportunities to have some success uh, that those days can come again and uh, don't let them catch you off guard. I mean, I think the dumber thing was taking a swing at a tow truck driver. I mean, those guys are grizzled, you know? Yeah. Well, he, he, it, it ended quickly. Thank goodness. They have tire irons, you know, <laughs> it, it may not have been, it was more of a crime of passion than of okay. wisdom. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, my, my, my experience at Watts was I was, I was told to have a salary and then I was, coaxed to leave that for a draw that I paid interest on. And now when I meet with young lawyers that especially want to get on the plaintiff side, I have a different perspective of how compensation should be structured. Because you look at people like you, me to a much less extent, who sort of struggled when you had the opportunity to make a lot more money elsewhere. And you kind of, it's, it's a different mentality. I think once you've kind of had to go through that and you kind of have to humble yourself upon the, I chose this and I'm broke right now. Yeah. And it's interesting as you look to hire young lawyers, you know, there's just no young lawyers really anymore that are willing to take that eat what you kill right off the, off the bat. And I tell everybody, I said, you're welcome to have a salary and I'll pay you a salary because I don't want anybody to have to go what I went, you know, go through what I went through. But at the same time, I can promise you, you're going to be a better lawyer. It's going to make you hungrier and it's going to teach you to invest in you. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's real easy to take an automatic deposit to your account every two weeks. It's a whole different idea to completely bet your financial independence and survivability upon you, your ability and your work ethic. Yeah, no. I, and I think I learned a lot of that from you. I mean, I just started cold calling every lawyer I could find in town because somebody was going to refer me a case and that was going to help me get out of my financial straits. You went over to Watts. You had a handful of years that were, you know, rough. I mean, I think you told me about even going to uh, the Hammer's office and picking up some of their, you know, referred out stuff that nobody wanted. You got to go on like the third day and pick over trash. But you were hungry. You were doing what you could. You take what you could. And then, if I recall, you said you kind of had a big break because you had a Ford case. Watts had just got into a war with Ford, and yours was the first set for trial. Um in that war. I mean, so much of that is luck. Talk to me about how important the Ford Wars were for you as a lawyer in your development, how much luck just kind of played a factor in that. You know, and, and I'll always say this, I love Dim and Herd to death, but Dim and Herd's background was not necessarily an automotive entire products. And that was Michael's bailiwick. So I was in Houston and I got a phone call uh, and the great irony of it and the great ironic tragedy of it is a, is a fellow that I used to play baseball against in high school. Uh, that went to a rival high school. He and his wife were returning home from her birthday party and a family in Temple, Texas, when they suffered, you know, your classic Firestone Wilderness tire tread separation, uh, OEM tires on a Ford vehicle. Uh, That's Ford Firestone break. for people that don't know. Ford Firestone, I apologize. And, yeah. and I know some of the viewers look at me, it, 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 it reminds you how old you are when a lot of people look at you with a blank face of about Ford Firestone, but that was one of the great- You uh, were on the end of it though, to be fair. It was, yes, I was, and it was one of the great historical torts, but uh, I had that case and I didn't have a ton of leadership on how to work it up. Uh, Roger, like I said, was with Michael then and, and was very helpful, but it really forced me to grab myself by the bootstraps and just invest myself. And I, you know, it's hard to explain because it sounds like, you know, stories that you tell everybody, oh, you know, back when I walked to school barefoot uphill both ways in the snow, but it's true. I was up at the office till 2 a.m. every day. I was back by six. There were plenty of times where I snuck in and slept on Demon's couch, uh, just trying to learn about 
vehicles and tires, and I owed it to that family. And back then, they had formed a statewide MDL. You know, they have federal MDLs, but it was a brand new concept um, back in the early 2000s. And they became sort of the gatekeeper for these Ford Firestone MDLs, and they had this draconian list of things that you had to do to be able to get out of the MDL to be able to go to your trial court and try the case. And I was proud to say that post formation of the MDL, uh, that case was the very first case that checked all the boxes and wow. got this got sent to a trial court. And I remember one of the nicer Ford lawyers, he was one of the national guys, and there's nine or 10 different Ford lawyers from four different firms working on it. And he said, man, he called me and said, I just want to congratulate you. I can tell you that there have been conference calls. You have been called every name in the book. And we have done everything we can to prevent you from being able to go to trial. And, and uh, I hope you go kick their ass. <laughs> <laughs> Where was the MDL at? The MDL was actually in Montgomery County, um, oh. our region, okay. uh, the region for our area. My case was pending in Orange, Texas. Okay. Um, but it was, was the actual MDL Barahona? was up in Montgomery County in Conroe. Was that Barahona? Um, Jeffrey Harden. Okay, Harden. And that yeah. was the first in the Ford Wars, right? That was the first for me. Now, Michael had Michael had a long history with Donna Bailey, Michael and Tab Turner and those guys. So, to you know, it, they had definitely unturned the stones and, and done the discovery uh, in their own rights and had cases. But in terms of the post-MDL or what they called the new wave or the second round of litigation, where it switched from sort of the ATX tires to the Wilderness AT tires, uh, that was the first one to actually go through and get dismissed out of the MDL and, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but if I recall Watts telling the story, and I always like to tell his stories because everybody likes to hear cool stories that you heard, right? Um, Watts would tell the story of how he settled a bunch of these, and then at some point Ford called him and said, hey, we need to reset values on these cases. And he said, okay, we're going to have to try them. And there was like a year where six got tried, and my understanding it was in that year yours was the first? It wasn't the first. Okay. Um, they had some guys, I want to say Carrizo Springs, they tried to roll over uh, against long odds and were successful. I think Frank and Michael, and I don't want to leave anybody out. I, I'm pretty positive those two are involved, hit a rollover, and it really, really made Ford mad. Um, and then I remember we had a post-settlement meeting with Ford on the docket after that verdict. And, and there were some things that were said and some positions that were taken that soured the relationship. And the next thing that I specifically recall is Michael having a meeting with some, some, some people that had, you know, more experience and, and were more um, versed in the product liability things, uh, sort of gathered us in a conference room and said, we're going to war. Um, mine ended up being, um, I tried three different cases uh, that summer. Um, I think mine ended up being the second, which was tried up in the federal district in Marshall, Eastern district in Marshall. Uh, and then the next one out of the bat was uh, an F-150 rollover that I tried in Cameron County. And then we tried an Explorer rollover in um, Hidalgo County. Um, and then we tried an F-250 rollover in Hidalgo County. And at some point along the line, after we had a little over $100 million in pending verdicts against Ford in judgments, uh, they called Michael and uh, had one of the most interesting and, and fun nights of my life sitting in the conference room at our old office. And 
really getting to explore with Ford some new concepts about uh, the value of these cases and, and what these families had lost and how they're not going to be treated like a grid or a square in a grid. Good. But part of this luck, I tell people, you know, it's right place, right time, and, and also hard work, I think, kind of goes into success in our industry. You got to be part of four trial teams against Ford. One of those was your cases. And if for, for listeners who don't understand, at Watts, you had a case that was your case, and Watts was also on it. But if it wasn't your case, I mean, it was another lawyer's case. And for the most part, you have no involvement in other people's cases. You somehow got to be part of those trial teams for your case as well as non-your cases. How did you get to be part of that trial team? And talk to me about the value of getting to try, what was it, 20 weeks probably worth of product liability cases in one year? Well, it's, if, if, if you're newly married, it's, it's not a good idea. That's one <laughs> of the side effects. It's, it's, it's difficult on your family, but it, it was amazing. Um, I was not a part of the first trial team in Carrizo Springs. Um, the Ayala case, like I said, was in the Eastern District, and then the, the Garcia case was, and, and then I helped on two more. So, you know, to reel off four trials. And again, that was in a period from August to November. And so wow. we're talking about a very compressed trial about trying four multi-week product liability cases, just the things that you see. You learn stuff that are obvious. You know, you get to hone your skills and how to address a jury, um, how to talk to a jury, um, when the right time to get angry, when the right time to be soft, when the right time to be whatever is. But some of the more important trial skills that people get lost uh, or that are lost upon people is like simple stuff like what do you do in the war room? What are you yeah. doing to prepare your case? What, what time are you going to bed? W what do you look like when you turn and whisper to somebody in trial? What, what, what are you dressing like? Are you showing them that you're tired? Are you showing them you're frustrated? You know, a lot of opportunities to skin your knee in some high stakes litigation that have forever taught me some things or at least reinforced a lot of the things that, that I was taught at Baylor uh, by watching just some really great trial lawyers, both on, on, on our side in terms of who we got to work with and, and some of the defense lawyers, you know, I mean, Ford, in Firestone, do not hire cream puff lawyers in case you haven't noticed. And, and it's, you know, it's, it is some of the top defense lawyers that I've ever seen grace a courtroom. Um, and just to watch them, to anticipate what good lawyers will do, how to counteract that sort of thing. It, it's, it's lessons you can't sit down over a drink or at law school and, and teach a lawyer. You just got to go skin your knee and see it done. And Watts is one of those guys that is not going to sit down and mentor you and tell you how to do something. But to his credit, He's going to let you do it. And, you know, I went to the Lanier Academy and Lanier says he tries his case start to finish only him. Nobody takes a witness. Nobody does anything in trial but him. Watts lets people participate. If it's your case, you get to participate fully. And, I mean, learn by doing. And I thought that was a great lesson I got from Watts. Yeah, well, and, and so to your credit and where you're selling yourself short is Watts did do that if he trusted you. Um, and you were in that boat where he trusted you and thought you were a great lawyer. And he was right. You are. And, uh, you know, the cases that we got to try together, uh, you did get more uh, leeway than a lot of the lawyers did. And, and after time, I was afforded that same thing, too. And, and uh, so you're right. We did get a, a rare opportunity from a, a lawyer that not only uh, had an excellent stronghold uh, on the litigation and how to approach it, but also, you know, knew that there was a future generation of lawyers that were going to need that same sort of experience. Yeah. Um, you stayed at, you know, you stayed at Watts for a long time. You built your own book of business. 
I mean, you know, no inside baseball, but for young lawyers who are trying to build their book of business, what is your advice on, on how to do that? Because you did it masterfully and you did it from the kind of junk case to the cases everybody wishes they could see once in their life. Yeah, you know, I, t- I, t- I try to have the same philosophy today too. Um, hard work, number one, but, but I used to have a saying and, and I don't think it's unique to me, but it seemed unique at the time. I would go to a referral lawyer and, and like you say, you mentioned Jim Adler. I did some stuff with him. I did, you know, if you could name a big advertising lawyer, it's number one, it's having the courage to walk in there and face him face to face, you know, pick up the phone and visit with them. But my whole big pitch to a lot of the people that were great to me and are still loyal to this day is give me one chance. I know that you are working with other lawyers. I know that there are a lot of great lawyers out there. You may or may not know who I am. Give me one case. And if you're happy with it, give me a shot at a second one. And if you're not, you've lost nothing. Yeah. And, and I built relationships upon that. Uh, a couple of other things that I would tell, you know, young lawyers, always be honest. Don't walk in there and tell a referral lawyer, oh, I, I got like $5 million for a case like this. Or, you know, don't oversell yourself. Just be honest with them. If it's a case that after you review the facts that you don't think that you can be successful on, ultimately it's helpful to them because they don't have an unhappy client like you do. Uh, they know up front. I've always said I'd rather have the truth up front, even if I don't like it, than I would on the back end. Uh, shooting them straight and, and not getting in money fights. You know, um, a thing that I said, and, and Laura, who is one of the lawyers that works with us, my law partner, um, said today, you know, on evaluating referral agreement, a deal's a deal's a deal. You know, there is no reneging. There's no, you know, you hear horror stories about uh, these big time lawyers that'll bully the referral lawyers over Watts fees. Watts always and said, never trade up a deal. Don't. Yeah. Cut your deal up front and honor it. You know, if, 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 if the next time they choose to send you a case and, and you think it's going to be more money or, or more effort and, and more risk than what the proposal is on the table, address it then. But a deal's a deal's a deal. Treat people fairly. Do what's right. Um, and, and like I said, give, your chance, give yourself a chance to prove yourself. That's the big deal. Don't make promises other than give me one shot at this. Yeah. Um, and then go with the gas off. You took all that you learned, you took it the business acumen and your referral sources, you started your own law firm in, I guess, 12, 13? 2013. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. So yeah. I left Watts in 2012. You left in 2013. Um, you now have your own shop. Laura's partner, Bo, is of counsel. Y'all are in Houston. You do product liability. You do big industrial accidents, oil field, truck wrecks. You run your own shop and... I have been a outside, uh, you know, voyeur on some of your work due to you letting me sit in on some some uh, jury consultant focus group stuff. And I mean, you're working on monster stuff, and you're doing a great job, and your clients are getting great results. I want to talk to you just generally about some of the you know, the 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 fanboy stuff about being a lawyer. What are some of the, your favorite cases you've worked on? And then talk to me about some of the most important cases you think you've worked on because those might not have anything to do with numbers. Yeah, you know, in terms of importance, and I think it's good, and uh, anybody that's heard me speak or had to hear me speak, I give the same stump line at every speech, and it's because I really mean it. Uh, there's 100,000 lawyers with a license to practice law in Texas. So no matter what case you have, no matter what your client is, no matter what the facts are, whoever has hired you has picked you out of 100,000 lawyers, and it is the most important thing 
in their life. You may have a docket of, as we do, you know, we try to keep it around 30 cases, 30, 40 cases, because I don't think that we can handle uh, a larger variety given, given the type of case we work on. You may have a car docket of 500 pre-lit cases. All of those are great, but remember that everything that you are doing is the most important thing in their life. And so when I tell everybody, what's the most important case on your docket, every damn case on your docket is the most important case. Um, in terms of, you know, social issues, um, one of the more important cases um, was, as you, as you well know, was the Megan Small case, which was the texting and driving case. And it was the first texting and driving verdict in the country. Uh, it was important for social issues because it really brought about awareness. It gave us a media platform post-verdict to bring to light a lot of these issues. I think insurers begin to, when they write these corporate policies, begin to require uh, fleet managers to have cell phone policies and things like that that didn't exist previously. It brought about a new wave of experts in terms of forensically downloading events. You know, back then you tried to go best you could off of the time on a police report versus an entry in a cell phone record. Sure. Well, you know, that didn't get you anymore. Right. But now it's brought about a new forensic analysis that I think has, I hope uh, it's made a difference, at least in terms of commercial and fleet vehicles. So I would say that's one of the more important ones, especially uh, given that family. I mean, I, I still keep up with, with their family that's and great. loving her. Uh, she was a Baylor student. And so that was super important to me. Um, I, I know that you have done and, and continue to do sexual assault cases. Mm -hmm. I, I think that is incredibly important. I have two daughters. I cannot imagine uh, the horror of what they go through. Um, and like you said, maybe they're not the most financially uh, lucrative in terms of a plaintiff's lawyer. And sometimes they are, but that doesn't matter. That is, um, everybody at my office laughs. I take on these pet passion projects sometimes. And, and, and sometimes I will get involved uh, and, and, and bang my head against a wall that may not ever have the upside more than 50 or $100,000. But I'll treat it like it's a $10 million case. And it's, and it's for issues like that. So I, I think the I think the texting and driving, I think the alcohol related incidences yeah. when, when you have somebody that's behind the wheel and they've been drinking and the sexual assaults, it, at least in terms of a long standing impact for societal change. The, those have been some of the more important cases. What about product safety? Weren't you involved in a Range Rover case that led to a recall, maybe? Uh, that was Mike Guerra, and he did uh, a fantastic job on that case. Yeah. Um, he, he did. And it was one of the, the first times I'd ever seen. Uh, somebody parlay excellent plaintiff's work into forcing a company to make a recall. Yeah. Um, and that was outstanding on the, on the, on the fuel filler neck cases. Okay. So what have been some of the, I mean, look, we've all had cases. There are cases I look back on and I say that case made me a lawyer. Like I, it just took me 10 steps in one year that would have taken me 10 years to get there. Did you have any cases you worked on in which you just look back on and you think that case really made me the lawyer I am today? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think you've got to start with Harden. Um, and then, you know, that we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, talking about a guy that had defended chemical exposure cases and silicosis cases for a big law firm and jump in and all of a sudden I'm suing Ford and Firestone. That was, uh, that was an amazing learning experience. Followed shortly thereafter by a fellow by the name of Eric Firm, who he and his family were on uh, a trip across America and suffered uh, a vehicle failure that resulted in a rollover and his wife uh, became quadriplegic and his daughter died. 
And so he was sitting upside down uh, on the side of a highway in Moab, Utah, waiting for EMTs to come cut out his quadriplegic wife and his deceased daughter sitting right next to him. Um, and to that was my first experience with the rollover air curtains. And that was one that was the first time that Ford Motor Company got into a fight and we forced them to produce the rollover activated seatbelt retentioners and the rollover activated air curtains. And even as Harden was fun, a lot Tab and Michael and so many of the people at AIG had done a lot of the liability work on the Ford Firestone stuff. That was cutting edge. And, and that really taught me a lesson about putting pressure on defendants, um, even in the face of, of you know, their typical bullying. Man, I grew up a lot learning how to punch back um, in that case. And, and, and as Art Bryles used to say, uh, the best defense is a good offense. Uh, it taught me that don't be defensive. The, the, the best way to push your case is playing offense. And so I learned a tremendous lesson uh, representing that family. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, Barahona, that Toyota case with a five-year-old ventilator-dependent quadriplegic young man. Um, if I could go back in my life and, and, and revisit the way that that case was negotiated prior to trial, maybe or maybe not, it gets done. Um, but we chose to fight. We fought a good fight. But ultimately, as you know, uh, we hit the trucking company who had a limited amount of insurance and then declared bankruptcy uh, and lost the case. Uh, against the more profitable Toyota. Uh, you learn a lot in a loss. Um, I spent a long time sort of staring at the ceiling and staring at the wall after that six-week trial uh, learning. So that was that was a loss, but that was certainly formative. Uh, I still remember Garcia, which was the first big verdict I had where, where uh, uh, I got to learn as I was already in Hidalgo County trying the next Ford case during this Ford Wars. Um, we argued the case on Thursday. The jury had it all day Friday and never came back. I went to give opening statements and the, the Explorer rollover case on Monday morning came out after opening statements at lunch. Got a call on my old flip phone uh, and learned that we had hit Ford Motor Company for $31 million. Awesome. And I, all I remember is I, I couldn't even catch my breath. I was trying to call the office and I was trying to call my wife and kids and I was trying to call the referral lawyer and I, you know, it's just the sheer thrill and excitement of that. That gave me a lot of confidence that says, Hey, it could be done. Uh, because like I told you, I wasn't on the first trial team in that Ford fight. I was on and ran that second trial team along with Michael and we lost that case. And so, you know, in terms of confidence and, and being able to do the job, I was in a place where I was really suffering. And, uh, you know, you were beat down, you were tired, your home life was suffering, the rest of your practice was put on hold, and uh, you had been excluded and lost. You know, those were my first two experiences. And so to really come through and hit on that one, that was a, that was a formative case as well. Yeah, and then how'd y'all do for the rest of those four, four cases? Um, the one that, the, the rollover, the, the two subsequent rollover cases, I'm trying to think about this in my head, the Explorer case, um, and then the F-250 case, both settled during trial. Ah, okay. Um, Actually, those were kind of ongoing, and that's when we had the last, uh, I hate to refer to it to this, but, but, but sort of the come to Jesus meeting with Ford on, you know, hey, we're not doing these on a grid. We're doing these about the families and what they've lost. So before we did this, and I want to kind of talk to you about your philosophy about being a lawyer as well as some, some of your other war stories. Um, 
I've learned a lot from you about being a lawyer in a couple different ways, but one thing has been you don't always have to stay in control and it is okay to let your emotions be show. I mean, some, I mean, to be fair, you said I could ask you anything. Sometimes I think you are over the top with that, <laughs> but you know, you and I've had these discussions and, and sometimes it does, it gets the better of me. It gets the better of you. Um, I think seeing you be as passionate as you are has empowered me to know that it's okay to be that advocate that is in a street fight against somebody spending hundreds of thousands of dollars or $50,000 to say your client is either wrong or a liar or not hurt or whatever it is. How do you try to, um, what empowered you to feel as though you could let your emotions guide you in the way that they do? Because I think that makes you a better and a different lawyer than other lawyers I see. Well, for right or wrong, there are a lot of times, and I tell everybody this when I, I do, on occasion tend to go over the top and, and it's one of two things. Sometimes my emotion and my competitiveness get the best of me. And sometimes it's very calculated. Sure. Uh, and, and sometimes it's an effective intimidation tactic um, that's used. Um, but it's these, it's these clients. And, and it goes back to what I'm saying. Out of 100,000 people, they've chosen me. This is all they have. Uh, this is their only shot at replacing that income that their patriarch lost when when you know some jerk was on his cell phone driving an 18-wheeler and, and, and swerved over into his lane. That's all that uh, Ford Motor Company uh, can relate to when they make a decision to save a dollar and 37 cents on what sort of power window switch they put in their vehicle. Sure. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, to me, it's like a shock and awe. What do I need to do to get your attention? Like this is, this is not a business decision to me. I understand it is to you. Um, but I always hate the misnomer when people say, oh, that guy's a true believer. You're damn right I'm a true believer. And you better be a true believer because if you're not a true believer, you're not doing your job in this case. And, and again, I'm not condoning losing your emotions constantly, but, but I am absolutely condoning being a true believer. And if you're not a true believer and it's just a nine to five job, you need to go in-house somewhere. I agree. You know, or you need to go defend insurance companies and, and sell your life in six minute segments. That's what you need to do. But if, 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 if you are going to do this business and you're going to represent somebody and understand that every day when they turn that key, they're going to walk in to somebody sucking and blowing on a straw to move them around in a wheelchair or that that baby that's laying in a crib that's brain damaged um, will never grow up the way the kids that live a hundred feet to your right or a hundred feet to your, to your left in your neighbor's house. They're never going to be okay. And they're never going to be the same. You as their lawyer are the only one that can do a darn thing about it. All right. And I agree. And I understand we just fight for money, but that's the only language that we speak. And if you're not passionate about that on behalf of your clients, I don't know why you're in this business. I really don't. I think you made a really good, I mean, look, your passion is, is without doubt on all of this, but I think you made a really good point that I always try to focus on. And I talk to people about of you want them to pay attention to you and you want them to pay attention to your case and you want your case to be a pain in their ass because they're going to pay more attention to it. And defense lawyers are the selling their life in six minute segments and they want you off of their butt and they want your client off of their docket because you're a pain for them. Whenever you sort of take the, the, the position on a case, how you want to strategize, I have seen you be as sweet to defense lawyers and as agreeable throughout a case, and I have seen you 
drop bombs nonstop by email, phone call, all of that. Is that a is that a managing personalities thing with the other side? Is that different cases require different personalities or sort of what changes you as a lawyer per case? I mean, in my, in my estimation, it's usually who you're dealing with on the, the other side, but am I reading that correctly? Yeah, you're reading it correctly. There's nothing worse and, and, and it's just the way God wired me and I don't make any, <laughs> I don't make any apologies about it. But if somebody calls me and wants to tell me how the cow's going to eat the cabbage in the case, that's strike one. And we got a big problem moving forward. Um, I, I, I make no secret about it. I am the alpha male. I'm going to be the alpha male in the litigation. And if anybody else for a second misconceives that they have an opportunity to be the alpha male, we're going to, we're going to get that straightened out in a hurry. And I'm going to fight you at every opportunity. It is my lawsuit. It is my docket control order. It is my set of allegations. It's my client, period. And we're going to set the tone for the lawsuit. And so, yeah, sometimes it's a personality thing. Uh, sometimes it's a thing with an adjuster, you know, and, and there's been plenty of cases where there's an adjuster or a moneymaker where I have a different relationship than I do with the actual person that's the trial lawyer and vice versa. You know, you, you just never know. But but yeah, I think it's a, I think it is a very much a, a personality combining with just the passion and the way God wired me. And I think sort of the way I look at how I practice law, it's it's equal parts who I am and equal parts who I've looked up to and been taught by. Who are sort of the people that that have taught you and sort of have formed who you are as a lawyer? And, oh, and what sets yeah. them apart? You, you know, I'll tell you the person that's taught me the most about being a lawyer is not a lawyer. Uh, the person that's taught me the most about being a lawyer is my dad. Okay. Um, and it's just a fundamental... Uh, you know, he was accepting of things that his industry didn't accept when it wasn't cool. And he did it because it was the right thing. And he did it out of the love of people. Um, and my mom just has an amazing passion for people. And and I would tell you that my two biggest mentors are them. And, and neither one of them has ever been to law school or has a law degree. Uh, when my dad was alive, he acted like he was a lawyer. He thought he was a lawyer, but he never had a law degree. Um, but but those are the those are the two by far. Now, in terms of uh, legal mentors, legal mentors, you know, I, you got to throw Watts in there, right? Yeah. Because he's just so he's so dadgum smart. But what a lot of people don't understand, man, and what I learned during those fights is his level of sacrifice, personally, um, time wise, emotionally, financially. Some of the sacrifices that he had to make on behalf of the clients in this fight at home, uh, I don't know how you ever uh, repeat that. I, I think he's one of a kind. I, I really do. Um, he, he taught me that uh, significantly. I, I tell you, I, I learn a lot from from people that I would consider peers too. You know, you always think of mentors as being older than you, man. I, I you know, I have I have great conversations with you, like approachable conversations that you and I can have. I learned from that. Uh, a guy like Craig Cherry, who, you know, is in Waco, Texas and, and lives under the radar as well. You know, he's, you're not going to find him on billboards. You're not going to find him in a, in a ad. A guy like Justin Jeter in Dallas, who's one of my dear friends and, and Scott Pruitt, just guys that are smart and wise and have a real cool and calming effect on me um, have really helped me with, with stepping back making a good strategic decision and, and, and executing on this. So I, I've been blessed. And, you know, I, I throw a lot of my former law partners in there and, and a former law partner of yours, John Ramsey. Yeah. I, 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 th I think he's, 
a, just a prince of a guy. And, and I've just been real honored and, and privileged to get to practice alongside, you know, do I use the moniker mentor? I, I don't know if I would or not, but I would certainly use it as good friends, necessary friends, people that I learn from, people that I thrive being around, people that I think make me a better lawyer. How about Brian Aiken? How was he in, your, in the sort of formative years of your career? Wow, that's a name that that I'm so glad you brought up because it, you know I would I would go back and listen to this and just be sick that I'd <laughs> left his name out. Um, Brian was unbelievable to me uh, when Michael. Who and was he though? To what, he, uh, was a, he was a co-part. I mean, but a little background on who he was. He was a partner at Watts when you went over. He was uh, okay. well. He, he joined the same time I did, okay. and he was he played that role of of and, and I don't have time to go all the way into it, but he played that role of what we used to call a law lawyer over at okay. It. And, and he was a law lawyer for the Houston office, but he was wise. He had worked for Ernest Cannon. Mm. Uh, he had had a career as an engineer. Uh, he had been to A&M. He had been in the military. He was a career guy. So, I mean, you know, nothing, nothing flat. Yeah. Brian. Right. I mean, and uh, that was when I was super young and just full of piss and vinegar. And he had an amazing way of communicating with me mm. and, because he knew how to communicate with me, it gave me um, great willingness to sit down and listen to him and accept the wisdom that he had. And, and he had a lot. I mean, he was just a really bright, really smart guy. And we lost him way too soon uh, to cancer. He got sick. And, and, and so I only had three years uh, mm. to practice around Brian and, and, uh, once he passed, I had to take over and run the Houston office as a 20, uh, uh, 20, I'd been 04. So I was 29. That's and, right. Uh, I and, forgot about and that. The Houston office. And I used to cuss him every day for dying on, um, <laughs> for all the administrative stuff and everything else that I had to inherit, but to, to, to just his kindness and, and the way he approached and taught me the time that he always had to sit down and answer questions, to discuss issues with me or any other lawyer in the office was, um, honestly, I, I haven't ever seen anybody like him since. You honored him by putting his picture in the conference room at the old office. I don't know if it's in your new one, but I mean, you honored him. That was That's how important he was to you. So much of your answers to everything have been sort of the human characteristics and human quality of who you've worked with, who you've represented, um, sort of why you do what you do. I want to talk to you a little bit about your philosophy as a lawyer. Um, you do not do a lot of speaking. You do not do a lot of these, you know, during the shutdown, every lawyer was doing weekly like CLEs. Watch me and I'm going to tell you all these great things. You speak very rarely. Uh, you have a fantastic presentation on corporate reps. Um, people can get that through TTLA, but you put a ton of time and effort when you decide to talk about what you're going to talk about, as opposed to, I mean, the frequent flyers who speak on the same thing all the time which is great, but for me, I don't get a lot out of it. I see people like you speak, I get a lot out of it because I don't see it that much. And you and I really don't talk law that much when we hang out, we have a beer and we make fun of each other. I mean, I wore this shirt because you make fun of it when I wear it. So, you know, and you've been a cover model for a, um, for a men's clothing store in Houston. So we both have our own sartorial, uh, you know, jokes to make. Um, let's talk a little bit about being a lawyer, you are fantastic. I've told people, I think you're the best trial lawyer I have seen. That's totally subjective, obviously. But when I watch you in trial, I relate to how you do things. So I've seen people I think are impressive, but I also think I could never do that. 
I see a lot of myself uh, being able to do the things you do. I like your style. It is a style that I relate to. But outside of what you're good at, what are some of the things you think you still struggle at, at being a lawyer and that is hard for you to, I mean, I still find it hard to depose treating doctors. They're still kind of wild cards to me. I mean, it's not the most technical. It's just, it's, it's hurting cats for me. What are some of the things you find difficult? You know, honestly, you said you'd ask the hard question. I'll give you the tough answer. The the honest answer is, is, is when I find that I'm making mistakes, um, I find that there's one of two things, either my, my emotions or my egos are getting the best of me. You know, it's one of the two things. And, um, you know, there are times where I dial back. I wish I hadn't said something. I hadn't done this. And so I would say in some aspects that could be a lack of discipline. Um, it's made out of the right place. It's, it's, it's a passion. Um, and thankfully it's usually recoverable. You know, it hasn't burned me too bad yet, but, um, you know, I, things I could do better is, is, is keep that under control and just keep my eye on the ball. Um, I think it's really important to young lawyers and it took me a long time to learn this man is have a game plan and stick to it, man. Um, it sounds silly, but when Matt Rule was the coach at Baylor, he used to have this saying called trust the process. You know, he sucked when he came in. He was 1-11, and and then the next thing you know, they're in the Sugar Bowl, and he's Jeez. off to the NFL But in, in a three-year process. But he, he since the day he got hired, nobody's like, who in the hell is Matt Rule? And what, yeah. what, you know, coming from Temple? What is this? You yeah. know, and he had a saying, trust the process. And, you know, I'm learning, and uh, it's hard for me. Um, but I'm coming to the point of sit down, think about it, have an analytical approach, put a game plan and follow it, follow it. It's going to be rough. It's going to be tough. Things aren't always going to go your way. Stick with the game plan. And, and those are certainly all things that I could continue to do better, no doubt. And, and to be fair, your game all plan. host of others, I'm sure you have a list that you'd be willing to share. Yeah, no, I mean, I think if I was going to say your biggest uh, challenge would be your, your, your temper. I mean, that I've seen, I don't see you have weakness in a lot of things, but I have seen things happen and think, oh, he's getting sanctioned for this. And you you didn't somehow, I don't know how, but somehow, um, the, I, I think the answer to this would be, uh, probably expert crosses, but what are some of the things that really excite you about? Like not being a lawyer, but the actual things you do day to day. I mean, it sure as hell isn't answering discovery, but what are some of the favorite things that you do um, in, in, in litigation and in what we do? Anything that gives you the platform to show that you've outworked the other side. Okay. I think that is key. Um, you know, I have, I'm, you know, we've, we've talked about experts and, and I've had the opportunity to speak about corporate reps, about discovery, about being, you know, sort of the landmark or the benchmark for discovering a national defect and that, that sort of thing, that, that geeks me out. I love to show up and the greatest compliment you could ever get is, wow, they're really prepared. They really understood what they were doing. Uh, any opportunity that I have to show that, um, be it, you know, if it's Vordire, if it's an opening statement, you know, I, I can't stand people that have these, ragged pages on a on a notepad and are up there talking to a jury trying to flip through stuff with their shirt half untucked be prepared you know be ready look like you know what you're doing anytime you have the opportunity to do that and be in control 
of the room. Those are those are absolutely my favorite opportunities. No, you're very polished. I mean, I don't think people that haven't seen you in trial or seen you do anything, it's not just that you're going to be dressed impeccably. You're going to have everything ready to go. You're going to be in control of the room probably because of your attitude either way. But you're always going to be in control of the facts, which I think makes you in control of the room because how often do you sit across from an expert or a corporate rep who's as prepared as you? It's 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 embarrassing for them. And, I, you know, I just presented an expert this week and and, and we sat down afterward and I, I just shook his hand. I said, man, it's a real privilege to get to work with an expert who doesn't feel entitled just because they have a great CV, but somebody that sits down and really digs in and cares and prepares and understands. And, you know, that that's not prevalent enough in our industry, to be honest with you, be it, be it experts, be it lawyers, be it, you know, you name it. It's, it's, it, it's one of my pet peeves. It's one of the, what I really believe is the downfall of what we do is just sloppiness and lack of preparedness and people losing focus on, you know, it's not about money. It's not about you. It's about that client that you represent and how do you look them in the eye? And how do you put your head on your pillow? If you are not the most knowledgeable, that's what you get paid for. Right. You get you get a fair and reasonable forty percent of the recovery, but you get a fair and reasonable forty percent of the recovery because you earn it. You better earn it, and 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 that's just something that. And how I many opportunities all, do you get to really show you're earning it? I mean, that's another point. Like, how often do you get to sit down and geek out and go just crush somebody and and across? It's not that often, so you should be able to spend the time when needed. I try it. But I learned a lot from you. You used to torture me um, and make me come to Houston occasionally, which meant I wasn't going to sleep. I was going to drink too much, and I was going to be given tasks that there was no way I could accomplish in nine days or five days, whatever time I was there. But I remember thinking at the time you had an uns- unsustainable work ethic. I think when you got your your name on the wall, you slowed down, which just meant you worked harder than everybody, but just by less than you used to. How do you maintain sort of the breakneck crushing work ethic that you've always sort of had? I don't know. Uh, Good genes. God just gives it to me. And again, it's just motivation. I I can't come home at night. I really can't come home at night and lay my head on my pillow. If there are some open issues that I haven't addressed, I think about it all night. It wakes me up. It gets me up in the morning and you know, it, that's just what drives me. It's just what motivates me. And uh, as long as that's the case, and as, as long as God willing, I've got my health and uh, and the physical ability to do it mentally and, and desirable wise, uh, I hope I always am able to sustain that. All right. So let's talk a little bit about um, philosophy, mediation. What's your philosophy on mediation? What do you think it's good for? When do you think it's useful? When do you think it's not useful? I think it's the downfall of our practice. I think mediation is stupid. Yeah. That's what I think it is. But you've sort of got a position that you won't mediate until when in a case. You know, we're still trying to be productive here, Hunter. I mean, I understand. Look, outside of a very few trusted defense lawyers, I will not mediate a case early. My philosophy is, is if somebody calls you and their sales pitch is, before we spend the money on experts and before we spend the time on this case, let's sit down and see where we are. That is talk for 
let's not do the work. Let me see if I can pick you off because you're lazy or financially unsound. Yeah, I think that's fair. I hate that. And so, and I, and I also hate when they file a bunch of motions right before mediation, and then they want to use that as a negotiation ploy. Look, if that's your stick, fine, but we're not going to mediate until we have a ruling on all those. Because how in the heck am I supposed to evaluate my case if all you're going to tell me is, is that you got a 50-50 shot of getting a summary judgment? Let's go figure out if you got one, big boy. And if you do have a summary judgment, fine. Maybe I've made a mistake. But if I'm confident enough that I'm going to beat that summary judgment and I've done my job, we're going to negotiate on my terms. And I think it really changes the tide of the room. And, and as you've seen, and I've given a speech on pressure, I don't know how you apply pressure if the first conversation you ever have in a case or early on in a case is, how do we resolve this case? How much are you going to pay me? How are we going to get it done? Right. There is no pressure because in the back of their mind for the rest of the litigation, they're thinking he's willing to negotiate on this case. And there is no real pressure that puts them in an uncomfortable position with them and their clients. Which I think is applicable to your cases. I think once you start getting lower value cases, there is there are the cases that justify mediating earlier because the expenses can eat up the whole case. But when I get bigger cases, I take the Hunter Craft approach to that. And the response from defense lawyers when they file those motions right before mediation of me pulling mediation unilaterally is as though I've just done it, it, it. They're dumbfounded. And then you explain what you just said, and they still just don't. They don't understand it at all, but I think it always works out in, in our favor. I mean, our favor, meaning I'm copying what you have taught me, but I think it works out in the favor of the people who are unreasonable um, in their eyes, but in our eyes, they can't say we're not doing best by our clients. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, you know, the pressure is, you know, one of the greatest piece of advice I ever got is they don't owe you a thing by filing a lawsuit. All right. When you file a lawsuit, it's your job to go take it, Yeah. period. And everybody that walks into mediation is like, you owe me this for this case. No, they do not. They owe you zero until you've proven your case. And it very well, very well may be the case that you have to go take it from them. And so my philosophy is, is look, you don't owe me a dime. It's my job to take it from you. If you want to negotiate in the meantime, fine, we're going to negotiate on my terms. I've got a widget, which is a set of factual allegations. I own it. It is for sale, but it's for sale when I put it on the market and for the price I put it on the market for. You know, widget is also the thing in a Guinness beer that makes it frothy when you pour it out. I didn't know that. Widget the, was always the, the hypothetical example yeah. Dale Williams gave us at Baylor Law School in product liability But class, the only actual widget is that thing in a Guinness beer can that shakes. Because while you're a really good lawyer, I'm really good at Jeopardy. So I'm just giving you that factual you know thing for today. Um, let's talk about depositions. So I have sat through, and there's a lawyer in town in San Antonio who's got to be one of the best lawyers in the state of Texas. And he's famous for taking six, seven-hour depositions. I don't you don't. What is your philosophy in a deposition? And I guess really my question is, you seem to, in my opinion, set up the deposition with the eye towards trial. Is is that what you're doing in a deposition? And if so, what are you leaving on the table? Philosophically, how do you approach that? Yeah, man, I, I would start with, I would tell you discovery, but, but for requests for disclosures, which are uniform, Every request for production and every interrogatory is designed specifically for that case. There is no set of 50 
RFPs and 20 interrogatories that our paralegals just automatically send out. That didn't happen. Um, every single one of them is specifically geared for particular trial issues or summary judgment issues we may face, given the facts of that particular case. In deposition, you're exactly right. If it is, um, you know, and I have a different, we don't have time to go into it about whether or not it's state court versus federal court and corporate rep versus expert and this sort of thing. Let's but talk about state general, court. General, huh? State court. Yeah. Just generally. generally speaking, I will absolutely leave some meat on the bone. And I will challenge them to bring that expert to trial. Um, I will not give an expert my best cross um, unless I'm really going after him for a Daubert issue. I filed three Daubert challenges or Robinson or whatever the you know, equivalents are in my career. We've been right on two of them. One of them was taken under advisement. So if we're going to shoot that bullet, we're going to be right about it. Yeah. Um, but if you've got a dog with fleas, I would so much rather, instead of keeping it out of the courtroom, bring it in front of the jury and swat it and let the fleas go everywhere. I mean, and that was sort of philosophically with you and Michael. And if I, if I recall, I mean, clearly I've been wrong when I say, if I recall, there was the judge in Del in Del Rio and y'all's Valdez case who said, I don't do dog bears. If you're a good lawyer, you can cross them. Did I recall that one correctly? Yeah, and he also said the same thing about motion and lemony. We sh showed up for pre-trial, and he was like, well, "Why? What is today?" And we said, "It's pre-trial." He's like, well, "What is pre-trial?" And we said, "Well, we have some motion and lemony." He says, <laughs> "I don't do motion and lemony. If you're good enough lawyer, cross yourself out of it." And then they brought up, Ford brought up, "Hey, well, we have some expert challenges." He said, well, "What's the challenge about an expert? Isn't that what cross-examination's for?" And he hit his gavel and left. And you know that was kind of pre-trial. So I want to first note, uh, I was right on that, if I recall. So that's, you know, one of seven, I think. Um, but also that was sort of your philosophy and Watts's philosophy. And I've sort of taken that philosophy because I think, and I got lucky in a case and I got to cross this guy. And it was a case we tried together with that Dr. Bauer who starts on video and is beautiful and his hair is perfectly quaffed. And by the end of the cross, he's red faced and his hair is all messed up. And he's admitting that he had been kissing patients and getting in trouble for like sexually assaulting his own patients. If we had not been able to put that in front of a jury, I mean, we lost, you know, whatever we lost on a different issue, but that was more powerful than having him not testify. I thought. No question. And you know, it's, 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 there was a, a, an exchange on AIG, one of these uh, lawyer, web, not websites, chat rooms, kind of listservs. This is what they call listservs. And there was a real big debate and, on who takes expert depositions. And some people would chime in, I never do. And other, I always do, but here's what I limit it to. And the other people like, I always do this. I, that's the great challenge to a lawyer and, 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 and somebody that you and I both have is a guy named Louis Muldrow, or he may have been gone, but, but he had a great saying that I say all the time. And it's like, when you're a lawyer, it's a good idea every now and then to stop and think, think, well, I don't have any boilerplate rules of, of I'm going to depose this expert. I'm not, I'm going to save it for trial. I'm not. What I try to do is get the reports in, and I do try to put that in DCOs, right, that everybody agrees to exchange reports so that you have a good idea. But if you have a report and you have a pretty good idea of the basis of what they're going to say, you could make an analytical approach on, hey, do I want to depose this person and get admissions that help me in my case? That's a very valuable and plausible explanation for deposing an expert. 
hey, here's an expert that's vulnerable because I don't think he has a scientific reliability to testify about this. And I'm going to go after him on a Daubert challenge. Also a very valid basis. I worked a case with a guy in Tyler, Texas. It's a fantastic trial lawyer. And his rule is I never depose an expert if they give a report. Also a very valid approach. At the end of the day, what I would encourage people to do is take those reports, sit down, read them and think about it. You know, don't make a knee-jerk reaction decision. Don't have a boilerplate, here's what we do with experts. Here's what we do with corporate reps. Sit down, think about it. Do I want to save stuff for trial? Do I want to hit them with it now? How do I want to approach it? I was probably eight months out of law school. I was deposing an expert in that case that we tried together against Texas Lutheran. And I called you and I asked you, hey, I have to depose a defense expert. And for whatever reason, we were able to we were able to designate an expert with leave of court 18 days before trial. And they were able to de- they were able to designate a rebuttal expert 12 days before trial, but we had to depose him. And so I'm deposing her six days before trial. And I asked you, what am I supposed to do? And you said, make sure you get all of her opinions and all of her bases. That was your that was your uh, advice to me. And so like a like a hound dog with two things to do. What is your, is that all of your opinions? Okay. What's the next one? What are all your bases? All your bases. And then after reading the depot, I thought that was actually really good. I mean, it just made everything get fleshed out and made clear she had no clue what she was talking about. And you're just asking simple questions. But where I run into this more often is I have run into this situation where I get 10 experts designated on designation deadline, trials in 60 days, and they're saying, well, you can depose them, but we're going to have to get a continuance. And that's usually in those situations, I'll say, I don't need to depose them. You'll see them use that as a cudgel to try to buy more time on their case. And there's no doubt when I I, I, I preach to every single lawyer um, that I've ever worked with or, or that's worked for me, every single staff member understands at our office the single most valuable thing that you have in a high value case is a trial date. And it's a trial date that's gonna stick. People's evaluations change. Um, The process that is required by adjusters and corporations change. Uh, It forces people to focus on the issues and they see things a little different. Heck, I've gone through in cutting depositions on the eve of trial for page line designations and discovered facts or testimony that I'm not necessarily proud of that I was previously unaware of. Sure. Right. And so there is nothing more valuable or precious than that trial setting. And I I agree with your philosophy. If somebody dumped 10 experts on me 60 days before trial and said, we're not going to let you depose any of them unless you agree to a continuance, I'd say I'll take them all live. Yeah. And and remember there's a great, you got to crawl inside of the head of an adjuster too, and a defense lawyer too. You got 10 experts, where's the case pending? Are you really gonna take 10 experts to Beeville, Texas? Because that would require you flying them from Chicago to Houston, Houston to Corpus, running a car, driving to Beeville, and they're gonna be there for at least two, if not three days. And you're gonna have 10 of those guys on the clock? Come on. Yeah, and and I think it also lets them know their frequent flyers probably have a lot of dirt that they don't know about at that point. Um, So let's talk about, what is the best advice you were given as a young lawyer? Man, I, I, I'm telling you, it's, it's nobody owes you anything, okay? Nobody owes you a thing. It is your job to take it. And 
and to put your passion behind the most important thing in, in anybody's life. Um, a mistake that I see commonly uh, and that I would warn against is people start counting their money. You know, everybody, you know, we always kind of pejoratively joke, like uh, I can do anything times 0.4, right? Um, don't ever start counting your money because when people start doing that and they head into mediation, they're like, well, if I get $3 million for this case, golly, that's a $1.2 million fee. And then in your head, you start buying bass boats and new suburbans and lake houses and all that kind of thing. And then you show up to mediation and it's just what the defense and the adjusters and everybody want. You become beholden to the concept of those items and you begin to lose focus. You are now focused on, well, what if I lose my bass boat? What if I lose my suburban? What if I lose my lake house? You can't, can't, can't do that. It's always got to be about what is best for that client, period, full stop, end of story. And you've had incredible success. I mean, not to get into any of it, you've had incredible success, but you've avoided the trappings of success. Why? How? I mean, we're in an industry where everybody is just, you know, pulling out their wallets and bragging and showing. And I mean, you know, I haven't had the success you've had, but you could play in that world and you just choose to sort of stay in, you know, look, you've got a nice house. I've been there, but it's not ostentatious. Um, you're, you dress kind of, I mean, to be fair, you dress like a dandy, but you know, other than that and your, your taste for expensive wine, but not like crazy wine, just kind of, you know, upper middle class wine. You, you've sort of avoided the trappings of success. And is that a parenting thing? Yeah, no doubt. Um, I think about it all the time. Um, if my father was still here, um, what would he think? You know, my mother was really sweet, uh, about 30 minutes before I went on with you today. Uh, she sent me a text and because I didn't respond, picked up the phone and she was uh, embarrassed because I was supposed to go up and see her last week and visit her, but because of coronavirus and she's 77 and it's not a good idea to see her right now. My sister and I decided to split the expense of an iPad and we we're going to send her a new iPad. Cool. And we sent her an iPad. I don't know what they are. I mean, they're not inexpensive, but they're not over the top. You know, we didn't get her like the pro or the air, just $500 iPad. Yeah. Right. And she called me up almost in tears and said, well, honey, you have a daughter starting college next year. You don't <laughs> need to be paying for an iPad. Yeah. And I said, mom, we're going to be okay. Yeah. I said, I'm, that's why I'm splitting it with Kara. We're going to be, you know, with my sister. So we're going we're to we're be okay. If, as, long as, I, as long as I restrict myself to paying for half of it, we'll be fine. Well, she's sweet. I met her, I met her once or twice, I think. She's very nice. Um, I want to end. You said I have as much time as I want, so I'm going to keep asking you a few more questions, but I'm not going to drag you on too much longer. Some of the things, so you're a, you're a very cocksure human being, and when you don't like something, you don't kind of not like it. You, th you hate it. And when you like something, it's the best. And I remember early on at some point, you were very against focus groups and, and jury consultants. I remember talking to you about it and it was hooey to you. Um, but now you really, and you really, you've really got into the focus group stuff. I don't know about jury consultants, but focus groups you like, I've gotten to sit in on them one, maybe two, at least one. And it's become part of your practice now. And I think you find a lot of value in it in a way you did not. What sort of made you, uh, I don't know, c turn the corner on focus groups? Sorry, you froze a little bit, but it'll come around. 
you can are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. We're back live. So did you hear me on all that sort of what changed your mentality on focus groups? Yeah, I'll tell you, I've absolutely done a 180 on that, man. There's no doubt. Uh, I think that, I think that my change in philosophy was meeting the right people. Um, I I am, you know, I'm not on the show to endorse anybody in particular, but man, Robert Hershorn and Jennifer Lipinski that work with him have, their work product and their value that they bring has absolutely changed um, the way I think about that. Um, yes, it's expensive. Yes, some of it can be redundant. It is laden of diamonds and just things that you would have never thought about. I mean, I've seen them sit down with our clients and say, here's how I want you to dress at trial. Here's, you know, just, I mean, just little things like that and the honest, criticisms and critiques and things that I've learned from them. Um, people that you work around are not always quick to offer criticism, you yeah. know, for, uh, for whatever reason. And, and they're just objective. And Cause you're scary you, hunter. Well, they'll tell you things you don't want to hear is what they'll do. Yeah. And, and they'll also give you just, I mean, just great advice that, I mean, I don't know how many juries, Hershorn and, and Lipinski have picked, but I, I bet I can't count it. And, you know, they just bring a valuable insight. And as I get older, um, I've learned a lot. Um, you know, you're always smartest the day you graduate law school. And the yeah. furthest that you get away from law school, uh, the dumber you are. And, you know, I'm pretty dumb. And I realize that there's a lot of really smart people out there that have a lot of things to offer. And um, I am a big believer in that process, especially on big cases. And, when there are opportunities to learn how to address specific issues, no doubt. What are some of the other things you've come around on that you used to think, oh, I don't buy that, I don't do that, I don't wanna be part of that, and now you think this is actually great? That's a really good question, man. Um, wow. Have you gotten into the three camera depot setup yet? No, I'm, I'm still kind of an old dog on the, on, you know. Have all you the seen anyone use it? Stuff. Huh? Have you seen anyone use the three camera setup? I haven't. You'll no. love it. It looks great and your your cases can justify it. And it's, it's. I mean, it's, you know, we're in CNN and Fox News world where people are in boxes and, you know, it's it's pretty good. It's Lanier's new thing. Delegation, I would say, is one thing I've come along to, right? Okay. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm an absolute control freak. You've alluded to that earlier, but in a bit much kinder way. Uh, I am uh, a control freak. I still am but have really learned uh, to trust and to delegate to others. Um, that's been a big paradigm shift too in the way I practice. And you've never really grown your practice, even though you could. Why? I don't want to. Uh, I want to keep it really focused. Like I said, I mean, I, I really, I can sit here and, and preach to you all day long about why I want to recognize the fact that every client that we represent, uh, we are working for them in the most important thing in their life. But if I don't allow myself the opportunity to treat the case that way and to show the client that way, and most importantly for the client to feel that way without me having to tell them that, then I've lost my grip on what my core fundamental is, right? Um, I started my own practice because I want a small boutique firm that is focused on very specific clients and, and, and I want to be active and involved and I want them to feel like we agree that it's the most important thing. I can't do that with a hundred cases. 
I can't oversee a hundred cases, even if I have 10 lawyers I trust. Yeah. Uh, and so you're right. I, I have resisted opportunities to grow. I will never grow. I'm just telling you that right now. I, I, I'm, we're in the market for hiring, you know, one or two more lawyers, but, but the concept of getting any bigger than five lawyers or four lawyers will never happen with me. I'm not interested. Yeah. Um, you, uh, you've sort of stayed around the same size. You've slowly grown a little bit. Uh, what do you think is next for your law firm moving forward? What do you want for your law firm moving forward? You know, it's, uh, I, I had a conversation with somebody the other day that was doing some, you know, spiffing up the website and this kind of thing. And, um, I, I made the statement that, you know, I won't always be in this business. I won't. And, and I don't think it's any great secret. Um, so honestly, my next goal, um, as I continue to, um, I hope provide the best legal representation that we can is grow some young lawyers. And, and we're in the process right now of interviewing some lawyers and not that I have anything against them. And there's been a lot of great success and I was a lateral hire, but I'm not looking for lateral hires. I'm taking people right out of law school. And I want, I, I want to do and give people the opportunity, the opportunities that I was afforded. And that is train them, give them, you know, and, and instead of catching the fish for them, teach them how to fish. And, and, and honestly, that's where my heart is um, in, in bringing upon the next generation of lawyers that are going to fight the tort reformers, that are going to fight the bullies, they're going to fight for victims' rights, regardless of what's going on. And uh, as my dad always said, and I'll tell them the same thing, take what you like and throw the rest in the trash. If I do something you don't like, don't do it. And if I do something you like, do it better than me. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of where my focus is before I sort of sail off into the sunset and uh, become probably more philanthropic than, than fee-based. Um, what does the sunset look for you? Best case scenario, teaching, sitting on a couch, being a sports no. f commentator, on a, couch. <laughs> a men's suit model. I mean, there's lots of options for Hunter Craft. So what, what does the future look like? So what you failed to disclose to your listeners is that male suit model was about 30 pounds and 10 years ago. So it's, uh, it's, I'm not as in demand as maybe I once was. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, I don't know, Justin. I mean, I, I think the next thing um, is going to be, like I said, training. Is that teaching? Maybe. Um, is it philanthropic? Maybe. Is it cutting back? You know, you were talking about uh, keeping up the work ethic. Um, it's it's sustainable now, and I'm grateful for it. Um, I've, I've got kids, as you know. One of them's going off to Baylor. The other one um, is a senior in high school. And my goal is to be um, the granddad, or, or at least the, the active parent, as they enter into young adulthood and be available for them. Uh, they've sacrificed a lot in terms of uh, letting their dad go and, and, and do the things sure. that have, have blessed the family. And um, as that begins and, and as those responsibilities of providing for the family uh, in terms of immediate needs, um, at least in financial uh, aspect, wind down, um, I suspect that, that my fight will too, and it will move to probably either education or uh, you say, you say philanthropic. What are your sort of interests on the philanthropic side? What are what are the passions for Hunter Craft? Yeah, there's a couple of things. Number one, as you well know, we're really involved in the MS Society. Uh, we, we have a team every year. I've written 
almost every year, not every year, with some interruption for the last 10 years, uh, raising money for people with multiple sclerosis. Uh, I am heavily involved in missions um, for the church that, that, that I attend, and, and that's important to me. And then um, the food bank here in Houston is important. Uh, it has absolutely had an exclamation point put on it, you know, in the last six months. Obviously, um, we have taken a real interest in that. And then human trafficking. There's a, a group here called Elijah Rising uh, that I'm involved with in Houston that is super important to me and that works in terms of education and saving young ladies and bringing them into an environment uh, where they're rescued and rehabbed and retrained in terms of, you know, being able to, to be on their own outside of the oppression and uh, the horrible environment that they were forced into. Are you doing any of the trafficking lawsuits? I know some law firms are into those. You, you know, I'm not. Okay. Um, and, and, and it's not a philosophical issue. It's just that the opportunity, the right opportunity hasn't walked sure. in. Um, it's, it's, it's not one that I think this or that about the lawsuits. I just know that there's a lot of people out there that are really focused on it and they seem to get the predominance of the cases and, and God bless. I, I wish them well. In the you never keep a broad practice. You always keep a pretty tight practice of a whole bunch of kind of cases that are in your wheelhouse. I, I, you know, in terms of an educational and experienced uh, basis for the clients, I, to me, that's the best way to represent them, right? If I know a whole lot about just a little bit, but but the most important thing in their life follows in that, that you know, that small pot, and I know a lot about that small pot, then I do a better job for them than I do trying to go learn med mal or trying to learn employment law or, you know. You would still be better than almost everybody doing it, if, even, even if you were doing it as a one-off. I mean, it, it, that's a... That's a that's a Justin Hill comment. <laughs> you're, you're, you're kinder to me than I am to myself. I thank you. I'm not sure that's right. But. Okay. So here's one of my complaints about you, Hunter Craft, is um, you don't speak enough. You don't do enough education stuff. When you do speak, you prepare more than almost everybody else that speaks. You provide more value added information for real life practitioners. How do I convince you to put these on a YouTube where people can see and no, I mean it where people can see where people can download your papers and read them. I don't take a corporate rep without reading your corporate rep paper. And that just came out what two, three years ago. And I still, that is my source to review. I learned a lot about being a lawyer, reading your depots. When you give me a paper, that's a, that's a lot easier than reading your depots, but you have so much great information that you could be disseminating to people right now. I don't think you realize how well received it is from the people who listen to it. I would love to see you do something on experts, how you prepare for experts. That would be fantastic information for everybody, whether it's through TTLA or not. How do I convince Hunter Craft to disseminate more uh, wisdom to uh, us plaintiff's lawyers? Well, the first thing you've got to do is teach me what YouTube is and how to use it. That's the first thing you're going to have to do. Um, but after that, you know, look, I'm always happy to do it. I can't think of saving except one time where I got jammed up uh, that I've ever turned down an invitation or an opportunity to speak. I love doing it. I love, you know, after the last um, TTLI speech that I was fortunate enough to give, which was, you know, at the mid-year conference yeah maybe a month or six weeks ago, uh, I got a phone call from somebody that said, Hey, why do you always give away state secrets, man? Keep the secret sauce to yourself. I, I don't believe in that. I, I really enjoy educating people. I really think that the more people know, 
the better off we all are. And, and I, I, it, it's a real challenge to me. I speak it very personally um, that what we do for a living and who we fight for uh, is put in the best eye and the best light. Um, you know, the public is hard on us. They think that, that lawyers are greedy. Um, you know, I hate the commercials where they, you know, have their cowboy boots with their suit and their feet are propped up on their desk and they're smoking a big cigar. And, you know, it, it, anything I can do to educate young lawyers, middle-aged lawyers, older lawyers, whatever it takes, at least in terms of work ethic and, and explaining to them, Hey, look, here's how I do it. It may not be the right way. I'm not up here telling you this is how to do it. I'm telling you, this is how I do it. Take it with a grain of salt. Again, if you don't like it, throw it in the trash. If you like it, take it and build upon it. Um, so, you know, I guess that's a long way of answering. I never mind, um, taking that opportunity and doing it. What I honestly perceive a lot of people. And when they do that is, is a giant marketing opportunity. And I'm just not going to do that. Um, if somebody wants to sit down and have a beer, um, somebody wants to sit down and have a cup of coffee, um, or if I have the opportunity to speak when people have sacrificed their time, money, opportunities to come sit and listen to a CLE. Um, I'm, I'm happy to visit with them, but to the extent that it would ever be viewed as, as marketing or for sale information or, you know, the tip of the iceberg, if you refer me your case, I'll give you the rest. I, you know, I'm not interested. None of your stuff's like that. There's a, there's a lot of speakers that that's not their stick. That's not your stick either. But even if I have to force you to come on my podcast to do this, the value is, I mean, really, it's just fantastic. Walking through the way you prepare and what matters in a corporate rep is so different than the people that give corporate rep depots based on what the law says and the cases say. I mean, it's just, there's such a different um, quality you provide to your advice that is real world based on the actual experience and how it is used in trial. And you need to give it you need to give this to our industry. I think people really want to hear it. Well, anytime you call me, you know that uh, I am. I will pick up the phone and I will do anything I can for you. I'm happy to, to donate the time and the energy. And well, maybe next time you're speaking at a CLE, I can do a, a pre-CLE discussion about what you're going to talk about and you can just put it all out there. Because this is posterity. I mean, if you had a YouTube channel or a podcast write it on a piece of paper, write a book. I mean, dude, you are a, you are a font of knowledge about this stuff practically. I mean, I mean, I mean it in a, in a real sense. I still get people who will tell me about when you spoke at Satla, how that was, I mean, the same way I refer to your papers, they still say how important that was and how it was the most informative they heard. I hope you do teach one day too. Well, that's kind of them. Uh, you know, I hope I never you know, I've got a plenty healthy ego, but I hope I never think of myself that way. It's but I appreciate you saying that. And, uh, you know, I, I put a lot of time in and, and I try to prepare. And, and frankly, part of the, the advantage of preparing for a speech like that is, is I'm teaching myself. And when I'm going through and learning this stuff and creating an outline and creating a PowerPoint, I am looking at it from the eye of the viewer. And I'm constantly thinking about questions that I might be asked or questioning a certain tactic or how would I defend, you know, here's how I do this. And, you know, honestly, I, I've put stuff on a slide and talked myself out of it based upon just general wisdom. And, and, and so that is what ended up going into a, into a speech. So, 
you know, I, I like doing it. I enjoy doing it. Uh, it challenges me. It gives me the opportunity to be a better lawyer, and, and I'm always happy to do it when I can. Well, if people want to know more about Hunter Craft and his firm, the the firm that, I mean, if something happened to me, y'all are who I would hope to be called, craftlawfirm.com. Uh, is that right? It is. I think that's right. I had to look it up. But yeah, craftlawfirm.com. I did too before you came on. <laughs> so, I'm not on my website very often. Sorry. Hunter Craft, Laura Cockrell, Bo Daniel, uh, Houston-based, but do practice all over America, but mostly all over the state of Texas. Um, one of my best friends, a uh, mentor to me, uh, an invaluable resource to me as a lawyer and, and co-counsel on a few cases. So thank you for doing this, Hunter. Um, just sit tight and listen to my overdramatic uh, outro music, and then we'll talk. Hold on. Hold on. I'm not going to do that until you, until you acknowledge and tell everybody, and we have a chance to congratulate you and Lindsay. Uh, on your newborn Lincoln. I'm sure it's made one of your podcasts previously. It is but, not. Uh, I don't talk about that. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. As proud as I am uh, of you as a lawyer and all the great things I've done, I'm excited to see you and proud of you as a father and, and as a husband. And so congratulations to you Thank and you. Lindsay Lincoln. It's a, it's, an, it's in a very exciting time and, and it changes your perspective real quick. Awesome. Yeah. Hold on. That's going to do it for this episode. Uh, we'll see you next time. Hopefully we can get Hunter back on to give us some of his CLE information uh, or some some practice tips. This was a getting to know Hunter, co-counsel, somebody who's provided us advice, worked with us on cases. Uh, so we'll see you next time.